Hi, and welcome to Walk Talk, a podcast courtesy of the Wound, Ostomy, and Continence Nurses Society. Walk Talk is your opportunity to learn more about advocacy, education, and research that support the practice and delivery of expert healthcare to individuals with wound, ostomy, and continence care needs. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast to subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. Now, here's your host, Jody Scardillo. Welcome to this week's edition of Walk Talk. On this week's episode, we sit down with Drs. Teresa Kelichai, Dr. Phyllis Bonham, and Glenda Brunette to talk about the newly released, updated Guidelines for Management of Wounds in Patients with Lower Extremity Venous Disease. Dr. Kelichai is the Associate Dean for Research and a professor at the College of Nursing at the Medical University of South Carolina. Dr. Bonham is the past president of the WOCN Society and has had multiple leadership roles in the society and has been very active with the development and updating of these guidelines. And Glenda Burnett is a certified wound anostomy nurse at the Medical University of South Carolina Department of Specialty Nursing. Thanks for joining me, ladies. I'm so excited to speak to you all today about the LEVD guidelines that you've spent a lot of time and effort updating for us. And I wonder if somebody could tell me about what the process was for revision of that guideline. Hello, Jody, and this is Dr. Bonham. Thank you for inviting us to share the information about the lower extremity venous disease guideline. We'll probably call it LEVD throughout the presentation because it's less time-consuming and difficult to say. I also, in addition to, I'm the chair of the Wound Guidelines Task Force, and we're happy to have our primary authors of the LEVD guideline, Dr. Kalachai and Glenda Brunette, who are also going to be speaking this afternoon. And I'd like to recognize our other task force members at this time, Catherine Ratliff, Linda Drost, Leah Crestadina, Myra Bernardo, and our scribe, Ron Palmer. You inquired about the process for revising the guideline and how long it took us. Well, it's important, I think, for everyone to recognize, and of course our task force understands it very well, the development of these guidelines is a rigorous, it's a demanding, and a very time-consuming process to go through the planning and to conduct the comprehensive systematic review and synthesis of the literature, and then develop the final recommendations. And in this case, the LEVD process took two years and seven months, starting in February 2017, and then the document was finally published in print on November 15, 2019. Each of our guidelines, including the LEVD, does require several steps to develop the evidence basis for the guideline. And it includes developing and refining our inclusion and exclusion criteria, search criteria, our specific search questions, the literature review and data extraction process. Dr. Kelichai is going to go into that and address that more completely. Then we have to synthesize the data, develop, review, edit, it, and develop a draft. The draft is then presented to the full task force, and we discuss and review and revise it until the task force reaches consensus. Then the document is sent out for independent peer review, and we use a separate group that's not involved at all in the development of it. And we finalize the draft, incorporating the relevant peer reviewers' comments. And then with collaboration and working with the National Office, the Creative Department with the WOCN Society, and then a printing office, we spend several months in the final edits, it's the formatting, and then the final preparation before it gets to that final dissemination in print and available in the Society's bookstore. 
Now, even after that date of November 15th, we're still not finished with the guideline. We have it available in print, but there are additional activities that we take to demonstrate the recommendations from the guideline. And sometimes I might call that a CPG, so you'll forgive me for that acronym. One of the first things we do after the document is in print is we develop an executive summary for publication in the JWCN. And the executive summary of the LEVD guidelines was published in the March-April 2020th issue of JWCN. We also submit the guideline and the evidence tables to ECRI, who now takes over publishing guidelines instead of the National Guidelines Clearinghouse that was disbanded some time back. And they consider our guideline, and our guideline is now the recommendations from the guideline are published in the ECRI repository of online guidelines. And then the primary authors, Dr. Kelichai and Glenda, have arranged to present findings at the annual WLCN conference. And then we update a companion document which is in the Society's bookstore. It's a clinical resource guide on venous arterial and neuropathic wounds. And so with each section, as we update a guideline, we update that section so that for the venous section, we added the new content for LEVD into that guideline. And so that document is available in the Society's document library, and it focuses on differential assessment and some of the key guidelines for quick interventions. And then after that all activity is finalized, the national office then undertakes the updating of the mobile application of the guidelines that's also available from the bookstore. So with each guideline we issue, then they go through the process of updating that mobile app that's there. So it is a lengthy and an extensive process to bring a guideline through all the phases. Wow, that sounds exhausting. Can be, yes. <laughs> it takes a dedicated and a long-term commitment for each of the guidelines. Yeah, and then it's somebody to push things through each step of that process, too. It sounds like a big project. And I think with other guidelines, and I noticed with these guidelines, some of the recommendations are evidence-based and some of them are more consensus-based. So could you just refresh our listeners, Dr. B, with what the difference is and why that you will find that in these guidelines? Okay, thank you. That's a very good question. The direct evidence for the CPG, such as the LEVD, was derived from published research studies that deal specifically with at least 10 persons with LEVD or BLUs, and then they have to report specific data about those LEVD or BLUs. You know, sometimes there are studies that are published on chronic wounds in general, but they don't provide us specific information related to LEVD. So we're looking very carefully as the research evidence is it within our search criteria? Is it within our inclusion criteria in the time frame that we search? So our direct evidence comes from those research studies. Now we recognize, and most modern guidelines do recognize, that there are areas of clinical practice that do not have direct scientific research evidence. Therefore, relevant published expert opinion, and I focus on the term published, and I'll mention that again a little bit later, is included in some areas, such as it might be other national guidelines or appropriate reviews that address important clinical areas. Now, when we go through the process for rating evidence levels, that does involve two overall phases. In our first phase of our review, as we initially review the literature, each individual research study is rated as a level one to a level six. And level one studies indicate that that evidence is from a randomized control trial with significant results. And then the lower levels, five or six, are small case reports. 
and the inclusion of information from relevant published reviews or guidelines is rated as expert opinion. And so that's at the first initial phase as we go through and rate each piece of literature that we're looking at. Then in the next phase, after all of the data has been synthesized into a report and we're reviewing the research and the expert opinion, we derive specific recommendations from that information. And then an overall level of evidence is provided that shows the support for the strength of that individual recommendation. We assign the strength of the evidence for the recommendations as an A, B, or C level, or you may see expert opinion or task force consensus. The level A indicates that that recommendation had the highest level of evidence, which could be from multiple randomized control trials, and then the lowest level of evidence would be level C, and that evidence comes from uncontrolled studies, case studies, or expert opinion. And you mentioned the idea about summer consensus versus evidence. You will also see the indication that some recommendations have a task force consensus rating, or TFC follows that. What that means is there was not any direct research evidence within the time period in the articles that we reviewed or any relevant published expert opinion to support the recommendation. And so that content and that recommendation is based on the consensus of our task force members. We specifically wanted to be able to delineate in our recommendations to show the reader where that recommendation was coming from. If it's from our own individual experts within the task force that renders that opinion and recommendation, or was it based on published expert opinion from an external source? So it's not that we don't consider the task force clinical experts, but we're indicating that this was what we derived out of our discussion in our own internal task force, as opposed to published literature that's out there that anyone can access. So I hope that helps to clarify those ratings. Yeah. That's great. So that literature review must have been a huge task. How did you all accomplish that? Well, that was quite, as you say, an undertaking. Glenda and I being the primary authors, we were tasked with reviewing the literature. But before that, we needed to identify the literature. And as Dr. Bonham said, we had questions that were posed to guide the search. So we had help from a medical librarian, I think they're called now informaticists or informaticians, to review the literature and to get into the literature because we're looking now at thousands and thousands of potentially appropriate studies that are internationally available. So just the types of search strategies and the types of search databases, which are listed in the guidelines, I won't get into that, but we needed help and expertise from this individual. And she was fantastic. She helped us retrieve the salient publications. And then Glenda and I were tasked with making sure that they were, they fit our inclusion criteria. So that would be proper terms. She went in and retrieved and uploaded the titles that we thought were appropriate. We looked at abstracts. These were in a reference manager, which was great. So we didn't have like an individual PDF of hundreds to thousands of studies and others. And then Glenda and I would sit down almost weekly, sometimes twice weekly, and review each 
one of those abstracts. And a lot of times we had to go to the publication itself and dig out the inclusion criteria. And on average, it took us an hour a paper to do that review. We also had help from Dr. Lee. She's a registered nurse. She's got a PhD in biology and chemistry. And she's also a WTA. So she helped us with the extraction process that we used a special form and we had to pull out the various aspects of the study. And we ended up with 327 publications that met our inclusion criteria. As Dr. Bonham described the process that we had to rate their level of evidence, the strength and the potential benefit, effectiveness, harm of the guideline recommendations, and then the overall quality of the evidence rating for those specific recommendations. And that took us close to a year. So you two know all about the literature related to LEVD. You've seen it all, it sounds like. Yeah, I think we have the landscape now of what's all out there and what is new and what's changed and what's consistent and what needs to be addressed in the future. Yeah, so for future research needs, I bet you know what they all are relative to this. Yes. So Glenda, tell me a little bit about some of the changes that have come in the guideline. First of all, maybe about medications and supplements, because that was interesting to me as I was reading things over before we were going to speak today. Yes, that is very interesting and something that a lot of people don't even think about with venous disease. But Trental has been shown to be an effective adjunct to compression and may even be effective without compression, but you have to look out for GI side effects. Simvastatin can be used with compression in lower extremity elevation and has been shown to significantly improve healing compared to placebo. Doxycycline has also been used and has been shown to improve healing. And the thought process behind that is that maybe it's inhibiting some of the inflammatory cytokines. So that's an interesting use of doxycycline. And then sulodexide, which is abbreviated SDX, is antithrombotic and has profibrinolytic properties. That's also been shown to help with lower extremity-related symptoms like swelling, leg heaviness, as well as an increase in healing. However, a Cochrane review in 2016 indicated that because of variations in dose, route, course of therapy, that the evidence was low, and they've recommended further research on that particular medication. There are several active drugs, and when they studied those, they found that there was no particular agent that was any better than the other. Pycnogenol, which is a pine bark extract, it's an herbal supplement, I've actually taken myself, and I do believe it helps. I have a little bit of uh, lower extremity venous disease myself. That was compared to diosamin hesperidin, which was one of the venoactive agents, and they found that those were comparable in effectiveness and both significantly reduced lower extremity swelling as well as the size of the wound. Aspirin has also been looked at, but larger RCTs are needed. And there's really no evidence to support zinc, long-chain omega-3 fatty acids, or mesoglycan. So that's pretty much what we found with medications in a nutshell. And that's quite a change from the last edition of the guidelines, if I remember correctly. I believe so, yes. And tell us a little bit about adjunctive therapies. What's the update with that relative to this version of the guidelines? Okay. So as far as adjuncts, low laser light therapy, there's very little research and the results are conflicting. So there's really not much evidence to support that. East electrical stimulation, which clinicians refer to as E-STEM, has been used for years. But because there have been small samples, different ways of delivering that, and research specific to VLUs, they need to look at that one just a little bit more. So there's really no strong evidence to support that either. Ultrasound has been used, but the evidence is conflicting, so the benefits are unclear. 
negative pressure wound therapy has been used. And there is evidence to support granulation tissue formation and enhanced skin graft take, but there really isn't evidence to support that for a first-line treatment. HBO has been examined. The evidence is currently not sufficient. Larger, more rigorous trials are needed. And then cold atmospheric plasma therapy. That significantly reduced bacterial counts, non-significant reductions in pain and wound size compared to standard care, which was cleaning and wound care and compression. But it was found to be more time-consuming and more research is needed on that as well. And then, thankfully, there's still no evidence to support whirlpool therapy. That actually is thought to possibly, uh, probably rather exacerbate the edema or electromagnetic therapy. That's it on our adjuncts. Okay. So always, it seems, at least from my clinician friends, we always are talking about what kind of topical steroids are good to use, how often, what's the best delivery method, and, and why do you use those? Well, generally, Judy, the use of topical steroids is recommended for venous eczema and dermatitis. It's also known as stasis dermatitis. I'll probably use the word dermatitis or stasis dermatitis in the discussion, is that the steroids are recommended for one to two weeks to help control the inflammation and itching related to LEVD and dermatitis. Unfortunately, and it's very interesting that there's very little research or published information about this area that is such a common problem, and there's practically no recent research. So if there are members out there that would love to get an area of research, this is one you could look at. I think the most recent thing we found was in 2011 maybe something in 2014 that was more of an opinion article than actually any research. Now, in terms of the actual use of a topical steroid, the customary practice for eczema and dermatitis is to start with a low-potency topical steroid, such as a class 7, which would be the least potent of the steroids, something like an over-the-counter 1 to 2.5% hydrocortisone, and there are all kinds of brand names for that that individuals can determine. Now, it is important to recognize that although an over-the-counter strength is used, unless a nurse has prescription privileges, the nurse still needs to get an order from the primary care provider to be able to use that medication for the patient. Generally, the low-dose steroid is applied once or twice a day, an application to the skin, not the wound, and that's important. We're applying this to treat the dermatitis of the skin. You don't want to put it in the wound because it could interfere with the healing of the wound at that point. And generally, treatment for up to two weeks can be effective. Now, an important part of this therapy is I think it is necessary that we don't focus just on the use of the topical steroid, but we have to back up and realize that along with the steroid, we have to address the underlying problem that's causing that venous dermatitis. It may be uncontrolled edema, or there could be a contact allergy. Older studies have shown that there is a large number, some of them as high as 80% of the small groups that they studied, of patients with LEVD that react and have contact allergies and sensitivity to many of the ingredients that are in the common products that we often apply to those patients' skin, such as the cleansers, the moisturizers, and even dressings. Products, and there's a huge long list of and some of the documents, but common products such as lanolin, eucerin, which we all like to use as a moisturizer, products that have balsam or peru, 
Topical antibiotics, specifically neomycin and gentamicin, seem to be a problem with a sensitizer. And small studies have shown reactions to certain kinds of dressings, including some of our favorites, such as hydrocolloids and hydrogels. So those are things we want to keep an eye on. So in addition to that steroid, it's necessary to avoid the use of those agents for those particular patients in terms of removing those sensitizers. Also, we have to continue to maintain an appropriate level of compression and leg elevation for these patients to control the edema. Now, that does require an adaptation of the method and sometimes the type and frequency of compression changes in order to accommodate being able to apply the steroid. I know that for many years, I had a practice in home care and saw many, many patients with dermatitis, and I found that a once-a-day steroid and a change in the compression daily was effective. In some cases, then you did have to step it up and apply it twice a day and then adjust the compression, but that always is an important consideration. So if that steroid is being effective, very often the patient is going to see some results with itching and inflammation within one to two days, but it's important to continue that treatment until the dermatitis is fully resolved and up to two weeks. Now, if that dermatitis continues despite your good treatment for two weeks, it's time to refer the patient to a dermatologist because they may need a more potent steroid, they may need a longer duration, and patch testing may be indicated at that point. And we do recommend in the guideline that patch testing be utilized to try to determine specifically what the patients may be sensitive to. Okay. So sometimes I have patients that come in that have had a prescription strength steroid under compression for months. So that is really not a good plan is what I'm getting from what you said. Well, I think it's sort of a phased approach that you want to start with something that is at a lower dose and then increase it as necessary. There are some issues with long-term use of steroids. We recognize that. Sometimes putting them under occlusion can increase the potency, so you do have to think about those sorts of things, but that would be also at the discretion of the dermatologist if you started out with the lower strength and then had to increase it. And if If that person is still not responding at very long-term high potency, then if they haven't done patch testing, I think that's the time to do it to figure out what's going on because very often it's a matter of a cleanser or something we don't even think about. I can't tell you the numbers of my patients that were reacting to eucerin or lanolin because we were using that to moisturize the skin. In essence, going back to basics, cleaning the skin with normal saline or potable water and using a very plain moisturizer like petrolatum then enabled a lot of that dermatitis to resolve. So you really have to put on your Sherlock Holmes hat and figure out exactly what's happening to that patient's skin that's continuing that reaction. Okay, great. And then the guideline talks about cryotherapy and the management of LEVD. I was wondering if you could explain what that is and talk about that a little bit. This work is a culmination of almost 20 years of research, and I'm so excited to be able to talk about it. What we found over many years is that cooling the skin reduces more or less the metabolic activity associated with the inflammatory process. And as many of us know and have seen in our patients with LEVD and then healed ulcers, that the skin gets stuck in sort of this inflammatory process, and especially with BLUs in that remodeling phase. After epithelialization, it continues to remodel underneath. So the wound appeared to be closed, but yet it's still, quote, healing. 
And the data show that if patients adhere to using a cooling patch, we changed the name from cryotherapy. I didn't realize at the time that cryotherapy is a treatment for things like cervical issues and skin <laughs> skin. So we decided to change it up a bit and call it cooling therapy because it's really not uh, zapping anything. But what we found in the earlier work we did, if patients adhere to standard of care, meaning they wore their compression during waking hours, they elevated their legs for 30 minutes a day, they did meticulous skin care, they kept their skin moisturized, they engaged in some type of physical activity, and they avoided trauma that adding the cooling or the cooling therapy to standard of care did not improve outcomes. During the big study that we did, we found that if people had LEVD, they had an ulceration rate or incidence of 11% during the study period. That was compared to what was sort of the norm in the literature, which was 70%, believe it or not. And that people who had a previous BLU or a healed BLU, their ulcers recurred at only 7%. So this is a substantial reduction in what we would have expected had people not had cooling in addition to standard of care. But I do want to say the standard of care, which I described as compression, we gave every patient or every participant a compression garment. We used a wrap. We gave them a leg elevator pillow. We gave them a skincare package. We gave them a video that described the types of physical activity and exercises they needed. And then we also reminded them about protecting their legs from trauma, such as hitting their leg on on something like their wheelchair, because we know that triggers are highly associated with VLUs and recurrence. So what we've just finished is a similar study using the cooling patch and a quote, placebo patch, which was kind of made out of cotton. The cooling patch is made out of a, a sheet hydrogel. We randomized patients to receive either the cooling patch or the placebo patch, and we did not give them the compression garment or stocking or whatever, the leg elevator pillow, et cetera, et cetera. We told them to do what their wound care provider or their health care provider told them to do. And we just finished, it was a six-month cooling trial, we, or placebo trial depending on the group they were in. We just finished the study March 2020 and we're analyzing those data. So that's more of a real world study of what people do. We're measuring how often they adhered to all the things that they were supposed to be doing and how frequently they were cooling the area, which we recommended they do it every other day. So we're excited to find out those results. And one thing I do wanna point out is in 2018, I did a presentation at the national conference on the effects of cooling on patient reported outcomes, meaning symptoms. And what we found that people who use the cooling patch had great improvements in symptoms. And we call that more of a clinically relevant improvement, not so much a statistically significant improvement, but to them, they said that their pain, ache, itch, and throb when they applied the patch over the affected skin, clinically improved their symptoms and it also improved their quality of life. So not only are we looking for whether it reduces or prevents leg ulcers, but we also want to know how it improves their quality of life. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's great. 
So I bet we see more of that in clinical practice moving forward. Yeah. I'm hoping, I'm hoping fingers crossed. I really would like to get the message out there that cooling using these small little patches, you can actually even get at dollar stores that they don't freeze to a solid state, they're flexible, are excellent in using to cool the skin in those particular areas. It seems like that might help with the recurrence rate that's staggeringly high for venous leg ulcers. What do you think about that, Teresa? Well, you know, understanding the source of VLUs, and we all know that the main source is having venous disease, but there are other factors that we have to consider, and that's why it's important to assess patients for who have LEVD and who have leg ulcers for some of these other factors that are associated. For example, genetics is associated with 17% of people who develop ulcers. So if you've got patients who have varicose vein in certain family groups, they're at high risk of developing ulcers and also for recurrence. What can we do about that? Well, if an individual knows that they're at a higher risk for developing the disease or a VLU, we want to engage them in preventive measures. And again, it's making sure that if they notice swelling start, that determine what the source is. Dr. Bonham mentioned that. I mean, there's lots of causes of lower extremity swelling, but Certainly, we see that as one of the earlier signs. Also, people who sit or stand for prolonged periods of time, and we all know this, this isn't new. Every WOC nurse knows that if you're in a position where you're standing a long time, like them, or us, I should say, or sitting at desk, like right now with all that's going on with COVID, people are working at home and sitting a long time. These can be precursors to the disease for a variety of reasons because it can change the hypertension in the veins and there's flow obstructed out of the legs from sitting. So there are just lots of different aspects of these factors. And then finally, the big one is for those who have the disease, non-adherence to compression and elevation and of course leg activity that pumps the calf are the biggest factors that are associated with recurrence and adherence to compression worldwide the figures are between 12 and 28 percent are adherent to wearing compression during waking hours and replacing it at three to six months depending on the type People wear that compression for years. We've all seen it. They're walking in with their compression stockings down around their ankles. So those are several factors. And there's certainly more that we identify in the guidelines. Mm -hmm. And then I read also about mixed disease and something about recurrence rate with people that have mixed venous and arterial disease. Could you explain that a little bit, Teresa? Well, peripheral artery disease is common with venous disease. And those patients, as you might well expect, have other risk factors for developing ulcers that are associated with circulation. So that's where we see that this mixed disease can potentiate the development of ulcers because of mostly the combined circulatory insufficiency and people then have some type of trauma and develop an ulcer. The ulcer doesn't heal. It's difficult to know how much compression to use, but you can compress with um, mixed disease. It's just kind of a vicious cycle that one can potentiate the other, not necessarily, but with mixed disease, the arterial component is difficult to manage. And that's a factor too for delayed healing. 
and all of us know that the typical obvious reasons for delayed healing and for venous leg ulcers are the poor management or the lack of management of edema and infection, biofilm. Sometimes it's hard to know if a wound is infected. And again, the obvious poor nutrition. However, we need to recognize that the ABI has to be performed so that we can rule out the arterial insufficiency. So without decent blood flow, there's not going to be healing. And that we all know, and it has to occur. However, less recognized, but to me, and in the literature, is equally as important are things like unrelieved leg symptoms, such as pain, and psychosocial factors, such as people who don't sleep well or they're depressed. We know quality of life can influence healing outcomes. And new in our guidelines, we found that people who have low self-efficacy or that perceived belief in their ability or their confidence of being able to take care of themselves or put on their stockings, for example, this influences wound healing. So if you don't believe that you're confident or, or not confident in taking care of your self-management, we know that, for example, people who can't elevate their legs because they can't lay down because they can't breathe or they're obese and can't get into a flatline position or they can't prepare healthy foods or they can't get their itch managed or their achy legs. These factors negatively affect wound healing and probably need to be assessed and considered when we're doing our overall assessments. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of whatever the treatment plan is going to be. Yes, yes. And the guideline talked about risk for venous leg ulcers and risk for lower extremity venous disease separately. Can you talk about that a little bit and why that's separated? Sure. And yeah, you would think that they're sort of the same, they would have the same risk factors or the same types of assessment criteria. And in fact, they do, Jody. To separate them out, though, for individuals at risk of developing the disease, and there's a long list of risk factors that are on page 30 and 31 of the guidelines, if folks want to refer back to those. Family history, obesity, physical inactivity, history of venous thromboembolism, quote, deep vein thrombosis impaired calf muscle function and impaired range of motion, impaired ankle range of motion, I should clarify. Those are some of the newer factors associated with risk for LEVD. The key takeaway message is though, for all of these is to get people in compression stocking sooner than later. That's why we want to know these risk factors encourage these folks to exercise and get decent physical activity that pumps the calf muscle, have performed meticulous skin care, not letting the skin dry out, and, and Dr. Bonham mentioned that, and basically get moving. If we can have people manage LEVD early on, the risk then decreases substantially for them developing leg ulcers. And so for those who do have diagnosed disease, the assessment criteria, again, are very similar. However, these folks need to be even more hypervigilant about injury prevention is a big one and managing their edema. So triggers we know, and this is well established in the literature, and we highlighted that more so in the guidelines, triggers such as penetrating injuries or trauma. In the South here, we have 
red ant bites and bug bites, it can initiate and cause an inflammatory reaction in the skin. And then boom, the next thing you know, a person has a full-blown ulcer. Dry skin, I mentioned an itching, contact allergic dermatitis that Dr. Bonham talked about with the patch testing. And one big factor here that people need to be aware of, if there is rapid onset of edema, this is a red flag for a VLU waiting to happen. And folks who notice this need to be told to get those compression stockings on. If they've been wearing them, maybe they need new ones and get those legs elevated. This is a hallmark of an early onset or waiting to happen VLU. So those kind of recommendations, but keeping these differences in mind aren't as critical as telling patients what to observe and what to do in the event that something changes rapidly, such as edema. Okay. Sounds like primary care providers should know a lot about this. And often, at least in my area, they don't. Yes. And it's important for us to keep educating and going to conferences and presenting our research and findings outside of our societies and outside of, I guess, for me, my scholarship and to talk to people and for all of us who are WC nurses to remind our colleagues that these are important considerations. And then the guideline talked about a CEAP classification. Can you explain that? Yes, CEAP is what we call it. And it's specific for venous disease, similar to how we have classifications for ulcers, like Wagner classification for foot ulcers, et cetera, et cetera, except this is mostly used in research, unfortunately. So there's four components. C is the clinical component. E is the etiologic component. A is the anatomical location. And P stands for underlying pathology. Again, we use it mostly in research, but it's very appropriate for clinical practice. And mostly those of us who are using it in clinical practice focus more on the C or the clinical component. And if you look in the guidelines on page 55, it gives an excellent review. And I'll just do that very quickly here. So a C0 is no visible or palpable signs of LEVD. Rather, these are more of the symptoms where usually aching is the first complaint, even before edema. And those WOC nurses who are on their feet all day long and they feel like they have to sit down and elevate their legs for the ache to subside, you need to get your compression stockings going because you have class zero LEVD, maybe. I'm just saying. So C1 would be those small spider veins, what we call reticular veins or telangiectasis. C2 are varicose veins that are bigger than the spider veins, but they're about three millimeters in size. So those are visible and somewhat palpable. C3 is edema due to LEVD, and this would be a diagnostic category, so to speak, where people would have their legs checked for reflux, and that's a whole nother conversation. And C4 are skin changes that you see. Dr. Bonham talked about the venous dermatitis or the venous eczema. We see the brown staining of the hyperpigmentation or the thickening of the skin or hardening of the skin that we call lipodermatosclerosis. And then sometimes you'll see little patches of skin that's lost pigment, and we call that atrophy blanche. Those are skin changes specific to LEVD. C5 is a healed ulcer, and then C6 is an active ulcer. Whether you utilize the C classification in the exact way, okay, a C6 or a C4 or a C2, make sure that you do document. When you see spider veins or you see 
edema characterized as being associated with LEVD. So these are important considerations. It just, it's a way to communicate what we're seeing clinically. Okay, that makes sense. And then you talked about self-efficacy a couple of minutes ago. What about quality of life in the guideline? How was that addressed? Because that seems to be a huge factor for people that live with disease and ulcers. Jody, it really is. And Glenda and I were struck by the somewhat, I don't want to say the explosion of, but now the awareness of how quality of life is affected by LEVD and VLUs. There are a number of assessment instruments that can be used and we list them on page 45 of the guideline because this isn't something that we typically assess during our physical exams or when we talk to the patient, but it's now highlighted as a critical component of the overall assessment. Because what we noticed in the literature was that lower quality of life was associated with these higher stages of seed classification, as you well imagine. So having an ulcer is associated with poor quality of life and also this self-efficacy that I just talked about. So If you have a patient who expresses that they're not sleeping well or they're not adhering well or they're not managing their disease well, these folks generally have poor quality of life and they're unable or unwilling or just not motivated to use, for example, or put on their compression. So a major recommendation that we put in the education component of the guidelines is to educate ways for people to I don't want to say ways to enhance our quality of life, but we know that if they self-monitor, for example, with writing down that they're putting their compression on or they're measuring their cast circumference weekly, this shows that their self-management is improved and it leads to better quality of life. So it's a little counterintuitive. You think quality of life should guide, but people who have LEVD and VLUs if their quality of life is poor, their belief that they can't manage their disease goes down. But these little things like writing in a diary or doing some type of self-monitoring has been found to improve their overall outcomes. Wow. That's a pretty easy thing to implement. Yeah, it is. And it's, again, something that we don't think about having patients do, but we know self-monitoring and self-report or diary or keeping track of like blood pressures helps people feel more in control that they're doing something to engage in their treatment. Mm-hmm. So like with diabetes management or a lot of other chronic diseases, active participation by the person would help quality of life then? Absolutely, yes. And then I read about a non-contact infrared thermometer in there. So somebody tell me what that is and what you do with all that. Yeah, I'm sorry. I feel like I'm hogging all the answers here. I have lots more questions. Don't worry. (laughs) Okay. This has been part of my research in using the self-monitoring model to assess skin because we know that a change in temperature indicates there could possibly be an inflammatory response going on or perhaps an infection. And using non-contact infrared thermometers has been a great way for people to do that self-monitoring. An infrared thermometer is basically a sensor. It has a lens to focus infrared energy onto a detector. And what that does is converts the energy, which is basically radiated wavelengths of heat coming off the skin or emissivity. So it turns this electrical signal into a display in units of temperature, and that could be in Fahrenheit or Celsius. And it's compensated for by ambient temperature variations. So 
all these thermometers that we're using for forehead and now that we have to check thermometers for COVID, this is basically what is being used as an infrared thermometer. And there's many different types. Some are contact, some are non-contact. Now, in the studies that I've conducted and those of colleagues, we use a contact type of infrared thermometer. And the reason for that is we have found it's easier for patients to be able to touch the area that needs to be measured. And we have one in our studies that we've used as like a long handle. There's other ones that shoot a beam, and those are hard for people to see when they're trying to shoot it down at their leg or their bottom of their foot, and many people can't even see it or hit the target. For patients who we recommend monitoring, we recommend a daily skin assessment check of the infrared thermometer over the affected area, whether it's damage from an LEV area or mostly which you would see in the gator area just above the medial malleolus of the lower leg or over the healed skin where they've had a previous ulcer. And remember, these thermometers only take a little tiny small snapshot of the temperature. And we know that the area around healed ulcers and in that vicinity, that medial malleolus area, the gator area, if you will, is highly variable. So the temperature can be a couple millimeters or centimeters, I should say, from the affected area can be warmer or cooler. So the thermometers have their limitations. There's newer types of instruments such as temperature mapping or gridding are very useful. These we know are great for assessing the temperature at the bottom of the feet, but it's trickier for the legs. Okay. Now I'm going to give you a break, Teresa, and ask Dr. Bonham a question about what is the difference between arterial and venous claudication? Thank you for that question. This is another area that there is limited literature and there's sort of an unawareness of the whole concept of venous claudication. The etiologies for venous and arterial claudication are different, but interestingly, some of the symptoms can be similar. Essentially, venous is an outflow problem and arterial is an inflow problem. Venous claudication is due to an obstruction or an occlusion that often or commonly occurs in the iliac vein in the inferior vena cava or in the iliofemoral area. It can often be due to the occlusion and obstruction can be due post-thrombotic from DVTs that restrict the blood flow out of the lower leg veins, and that results in severe thigh and leg tightness and pain with exercise. Venous claudication pain typically takes about 20 to 30 minutes to resolve, and a clue that it is venous origin versus arterial is that leg elevation improves the pain. Another clue is the ABI is within normal limits, whereas arterial claudication is due then to occlusion and obstruction of one or more lower extremity arteries that restrict the blood flow to the lower extremity, causing ischemic pain that we term intermittent claudication. Intermittent claudication is characterized as reproducible cramping, aching, fatigue, weakness, and or frank pain in the buttock, thigh, or calf muscles, rarely occurs in the foot, that occurs with exercise. And the point about reproducible means that the patient walks a predictable amount of distance and they get pain each time. For example, they can only get to the mailbox before they have claudication pain or they can only walk so far before the pain happens. So that's what reproducible means. It's recurring and it's predictable and reproducible. Now with intermittent arterial claudication, it's typically relieved within 10 minutes of rest and it's alleviated with dependency of the limb by putting it in a, in a lower position. 
So one of the key clues to a differential assessment of arterial from venous claudication is that arterial pain is increased with leg elevation and elevation improves venous pain. So those are some clues to look at. And then as with arterial disease, as the disease progresses, you will see in severe occlusion or obstruction, the patient has pain, even the absence of activity, they're not doing anything and their leg is creating them pain. And you also want to look then for your patient with a differential diagnosis diagnosis is that the ABI would be abnormal for those patients that are having arterial claudication or they demonstrate the pain in an ABI. So it's changing the ABI with exercise can also confirm that diagnosis. And then there are other diagnostic tests that are non-invasive that if there's an issue or the determination is to consider surgery to correct those problems, sometimes with the venous obstruction, then they may do endovascular surgical repair with stents. And then, of course, with arterial patients, they may be revascularized. So if there's an area where more definitive information is needed, then refer that patient on out to get better vascular test done. Okay. And then what about the ABI and compression? And are there any changes in the use and recommendations around that? Well, we have not really changed our recommendation for using the ABI to rule out arterial disease and then also to use it with a patient that has wounds. And we use it prior to compression to determine what level of compression can be done. Since we developed our very first guideline, we started working on guidelines back in 1998. And our first guideline was related to arterial disease or LEAD, as we call it, lower extremity arterial disease. When it was published in 2002, one of the major changes in practice at that time was to recognize the benefit of having a non-invasive Doppler ABI that could screen patients for LEAD. And since LEAD is unrecognized and undiagnosed in up to as high, some of the studies have shown 80% of patients with LEAD, it's not recognized by them and or their provider. And so it's important for any patient that has a lower extremity wound, including LEVD, to determine that perfusion status, to determine can that wound possibly heal. We want to know what kind of appropriate therapy can be given, particularly compression with our LEVD patients, as well as when we should debride or not to debride. And relying on pulse palpation is completely unreliable as a valid parameter. So the importance of ABI has been with us since our first guideline in 2002, and we continue that through for anyone with a lower extremity wound. And it's important to use the ABI with compression because as, as we've talked about, compression is considered the cornerstone of effective treatment for both prevention of edema and LEVD and prevention and treatment of the VLUs or the venous leg ulcers. However, if the patient has significant arterial ischemia, too much pressure could create some problems there. So the ABI is a non-invasive test. It's relatively inexpensive. It's valid and reliable. It's easy to perform. And so the guidelines do recommend specific testing so that we can determine what level of compression can be applied for the patient that has venous disease and edema. And so we still adhere that if the ABI is equal to or greater than 0.80, 
the therapeutic minimum therapeutic level for a therapeutic compression, which is 30 to 40 millimeters of compression at the ankle, can be used. However, if that ABI is less than 0.80, the compression should be reduced to between 20 to no higher than 30 millimeters of mercury uh, pressure. And of course, when we open up those boxes of compression garments and any of those wraps or stockings that provide pressure, particularly with the wraps, uh, the manufacturer generally mentions that uh, higher than 30 to 40 should be applied uh, only if the ABI is 0.80 or above. So that's a lot of those papers that a lot of us years ago didn't look at. We just sort of got rid of those directions. And <laughs> and then if the ABI is less than 0.50, then we're getting close to severe ischemia and compression should not be applied on those patients and they should be referred off to a vascular surgeon to evaluate for further testing and or to see if they'd be a candidate for revascularization. Now, with LEVD patients, if they go through revascularization after they've recovered from the surgery, they can be re-evaluated then to determine if they can go back into the compression if they're still having edema from the venous component of their disease. Oh, okay. That makes perfect sense. Yes, because the arterial revascularization is not fixing the venous problem. So if they still have that, and generally the surgeons will look at the ABI is 0.7, which that's what they hope to achieve with uh, revascularization, at least that, then a low level of compression or that reduced level of compression could be utilized in that area. And of course, we do realize that in some cases, the ABI can be elevated if it's above 1.3, hours considered elevated, or it may be unmeasurable due to non-compressible arteries, and unmeasurable is considered greater than 1.40. And that occurs from calcification in the arteries that we know that some of our patients, such as those with diabetes, kidney disease, will have. And so in that case, then toe pressures or toe brachial indexes may be utilized to determine if the arterial circulation is sufficient. A TBI less than 0.64 is considered LEAD. And then if the toe pressure is less than 30 or less than 50, that indicates critical limb ischemia. So we need to have some collaboration there and some thoughtful decisions about what level of compression for that point. Unfortunately, there are not specific guidelines for using compression with LAVD patients based on the toe pressure like there are with ABIs. But I would say that if your TBI indicates LEAD, I would use reduced compression. And then if your actual toe pressure is less than 30 or less than 50 with a diabetic, do not put compression on that patient and refer them. Okay, that makes sense. It's way more complicated than one would think. Yes, but you know, often it really can be, it's a relief when you can check that patient and determine where they are with the ABI, particularly if you're working in an outpatient clinic or in home care and you've driven five hours to see the patient and you think, well, gee, can I use compression on this new patient? And with appropriate education and training, then any nurse can reliably perform an ABI with a portable Doppler. And then you can be confident that you're applying compression in an appropriate manner. Of course, in a hospital and some other settings, they may have to refer that patient in order to get the ABI. We don't say that everybody has to do the ABI as a WLC nurse, although we would like to see more and more individuals taking advantage of that. But the important thing is that we have that data, and whether you get it from the vascular lab or the surgeon or you do it yourself, providing that test has just been very quick and efficient for me and my practice and for many other uh, individuals. And I know that 
that is something that we even incorporate into the uh, wound treatment associated education is for them to be aware that the ABI can be done with handheld Doppler. Right. And then you can start therapy if the patient's appropriate much sooner than waiting to get those diagnostics done someplace else. Exactly, because by the time you refer a patient for that, and particularly in home care and clinics, just think about the edema. The wound is not healing. The edema is getting worse, and things are just getting further and further out of hand while you can wait sometimes four to six weeks to get test. It really is something that we encourage our members and some people get all excited. They say, well, so it's so expensive and it takes so much time. I have a Doppler that I have had for, oh gee, probably 15 years, if not more. And the only thing I do is put a battery in it. So that was the best $900 I ever spent back 15 years ago. And you can't really purchase anything uh, for that amount of money anymore. And it's really not that, it's a blood pressure. That's all it is. It's a blood pressure. We're just using the Doppler to measure the pressure. And once you get into a little bit of practice with it, it does take some practice. I practice on my NM1, uh, my husband, and he's always happy when I learn how to do these things. And you can do it in about 15 minutes once you've gotten sort of your own rhythm with performing it. So I encourage people to consider it. I am sort of an advocate of the ABI. Yeah. Well, it's a tool right there. It makes sense to use it. Why not, right? Well, we wouldn't guess what a patient's blood pressure or temperature is. We wouldn't say, well, I think you have a fever. We would measure it with a thermometer. We wouldn't say, I think you have high blood pressure. We would measure it. And so keep in mind, this is a clinical tool that gives us specific measurable information so that we don't have to guess, are we putting the right level? Should we debride it? The other area is when to debride a wound. Because if that patient is in critical ischemia and you jump in and get those sharp instruments out and debride that wound and that patient later loses a leg because the vascular assessment has not been done, then things are going to get rather difficult for everyone involved. Right. And then I read and I've seen the compression algorithm. So will you talk about that a little bit? Because I wondered if everybody that would want that tool knew it was even available. It's really nice. Yes, I think that's an excellent point to bring up. I also wanted to mention that as well. We do have some simple algorithms with each of our guidelines. We have a differential assessment of lower extremity wounds in the appendix because we believe that that's the holy grail to determining etiology and proper intervention is to do a proper assessment. Not all wounds are the same. They require different interventions, whether it's venous arterial and neuropathic or pressure injury. And we've talked about levels of compression or when to debride and not to breed, because there are certain things that we should do, certain things that we should not do, knowing which of those etiologies it is, when to apply pressure and how much, when to offload pressure, such as for the neuropathic and pressure injuries. So that little quick guide we encourage people to use to think about that differential etiology. Also, in addition to that, there is a clinical resource guide in the Society's Document Library that focuses on differential assessment and key interventions for venous, arterial, and neuropathic wounds. And so that's a companion document to each of the guidelines, and we update that document with each new guideline. And then the resource that you mentioned is indeed an excellent online resource that is designed for assessment, venous disease, and selecting appropriate compression for prevention and treatment of LEVD and venous leg ulcers. And that is the document that we're referring to, or the algorithm, is the WCN Society's algorithm 
that is an evidence and consensus based algorithm. It was also content validated and it's online. Um, the link to the algorithm is on the society's homepage under the resource tab. And so if you click on that and scroll down and you'll see the algorithm among many other excellent resources that are there. So it's online. Uh, you can get to it from any of your mobile devices as well. It's easily accessible and it's kind of an interesting, fun, interactive guideline to use as well. And it guides you through the clinical assessment of the lower extremity and appropriate selection of compression based upon the assessment and variables that are entered. And links are provided to supportive documents such as the the guide goes through the SEEP classification based upon what you're saying is you're seeing for your patient, performing and interpreting the ABI, and then selecting of the various types of compression that are there. So that's an online tool and resource that we hope members can identify and avail themselves of, and particularly for someone that may be new in practice or new as a WLC nurse and dealing with leg ulcers, that would be a great opportunity for them to follow through that. There also is an article that was developed and published by that group that developed the algorithm. There was a JWCN article in 2016 by Ratliff and colleagues, and so that has a general overview of the algorithm, as well as there's a link to that article in the actual online algorithm. So if folks want to pursue more of the details about that, we would encourage them to do so. Great, thanks. I'll mention those at the end again, too, in case people want those resources, and we'll repeat that for people. Excellent. And we did include that in our recommendations that individuals should consider using that. Okay, great. Yeah, that, it's really a nice document. So I think I remember reading in the updated guidelines that we were talking about that light compression is acceptable for people with LEVD or lipodermatosclerosis if they can't tolerate or can't afford maybe what is the ideal compression for their situation. Can you speak to that a little bit, Dr. Baum? Yes, lipodermatosclerosis is a SEEP class 4 indicating advanced skin changes for the patient with LEVD. And that patient is at risk for BOU development. And when Dr. Kelichai reviewed through the SEEP classification, you can see that the next thing that happens is an ulcer can occur. And so therefore, to prevent leg ulcers and to reduce recurrence by controlling edema in such advanced disease, it's recommended that all individuals with sufficient blood flow, in other words, that ABI greater than 0.80, use the 30 to 40 millimeters of compression or the strongest compression they can apply or tolerate. Because we do recognize that not all individuals can apply the stockings. They may not tolerate them for whatever reason. They may not be able to afford them. The lesser ranges are less expensive. The higher you go up on the compression range, they get a little bit more expensive. And so therefore, a light compression can be an alternative along with leg elevation for those individuals who can't tolerate those higher levels because guidance is that any compression is better than none. So use the highest level that the patient can tolerate. Now, it gets interesting in terms of what's considered mild or light compression. The definitions of compression levels vary between the U.S. and Europe and also the common guidelines that come out of the U.K. They also differ whether you're talking about mild or light compression of bandages, which is defined as less than 20 millimeters of mercury, or mild light compression for stockings. In the UK, stocking light compression is considered 14 to 17 millimeters of pressure in mercury. In the US, it's 20 to 30. 
So depending on where you are, you may be utilizing different levels of information. And also for those individuals that are having difficulty applying compression, we do recommend that they consider other alternatives such as some of the adjustable devices or orthotics that can be adjusted to the level of compression, either low or mild or high. Some of the two component stockings can provide lower levels and then they may need to consider some of the stocking aids to see if they can get some assistance in applying the garment. We do make the point, however, we don't wish to encourage individuals to rely on anti-embolism stockings that provide low pressure because they're not designed for therapeutic compression at the ankle to prevent or treat lower extremity venous disease or leg ulcer. So we want to avoid those. And some cases, an inexpensive alternative, particularly I know I've heard of some of my colleagues using this in inpatient settings and sometimes with clinic patients, they use the tubular elasticated bandages that if you put two layers of that tubular bandage on, it will provide 20 millimeters of pressure. So that can be another alternative to consider. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of patients who like that because then they can take it off. Sometimes I think have more control over the situation than something that they can't get on and off so easily. Exactly. Exactly. Great. So Glenda, tell me what you think about the future of compression and what do you think is coming? What would you like to see coming? I'd like to see something that's easier for people to get on and off, but that's just my wish. Tell me what you think. Well, I totally agree with that. Struggling with my 20 to 30s every morning, putting those on and struggling patients' therapeutic compression stockings on, it is very difficult. And for our older patients, we can strength or arthritis or they can't bend enough to get to their feet for whatever reason. Easier to apply would be awesome. And Dr. Bonham just highlighted several wonderful options for people who are struggling with that. But living in South Carolina, it is hot and humid, I swear, 11 out of the 12 months here. I would love to see something a little cooler, and I don't know that that's possible, but um, cooler would be great. They've gotten a lot more stylish. They don't look quite so therapeutic anymore. The ones I'm wearing today are hot pink, just so you know. Nice. I wish we had a video camera. I'll send you video later. Just kidding. Better insurance coverage would be great too, since currently you have to have a diagnosis of an ulcer to get help with the insurance as the therapeutic stockings are a bit more pricey. And then more affordable adjustable Velcro devices. Those are currently, I want to say about $100 per leg. I haven't priced those lately, but they're expensive and they are really good, especially for people who do have issues with dexterity and bending and such. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems to be a problem. And it seems like most of my patients that are in that situation live by themselves and don't always have a caregiver right there that could help them. Exactly. Ask them if they have stockings and they'll say, yeah, I have six pairs in the drawer. I just can't get them on. (laughs) Yeah. Or they get them on and then they need to take them off and they can't get them off. So once they're off, they don't go back on. Exactly. So what do you think are the most important education areas for patients? Like if you're starting, you have a new patient you're starting to work with, or maybe somebody that's had some kind of venous disease for a long time. What are the areas that you focus on and that you think are the most important for us working with our patients on? I think first and foremost, they have to understand on their level, something about the disease process, what's leading to this, the need to control swelling and what is going to happen if they don't control the swelling, i.e. ulceration, and the fact that they are going to need to wear lifelong compression. Even if they've had surgical correction, they typically um, wear compression afterward. So if they don't understand why we're asking them to do these things and why it's important to them and their health, their quality of life, et cetera, et cetera, then they're really not going to comply with us. But if they understand, they're much more likely to make an effort. And then the other thing is, and this goes back to them understanding sort of the disease process, 
correlation between edema and the amount of drainage. I used to have an outpatient clinic and I would have patients who I think I could change their dressing twice a day simply because they just didn't seem to make that connection between elevation and minimizing the swelling in order to minimize the drainage because in turn the skin would be in poor condition. And it's hard to heal a wound when the periwound skin is basically dying back. So helping them to understand if they will comply with the compression, if they will elevate um, and reduce the edema, they will see a decrease in drainage, which will improve their skin, which will hopefully improve their healing potential. And then I guess the last thing is, and probably this is more of a personal note, just because I'm wearing compression now, and going back to what Dr. Kelichai was saying about risk factors, if you look at the risk factors, and WSC nurses all need to be in, all nurses probably need to be in compression, but it really hits a large segment of our population. And I wish our healthcare providers were better at educating people at pension and what they can do, whether it's a lower level of compression or elevation or calf muscle pumps, to prevent the disease from progressing to the point where they need our care. Right. So prevention instead of management. Exactly. Yeah. And do you have strategies that you've had success with for the long-term compliance? Like We seem to have patients that we compress, they heal, they look great. We get them in what we think is going to be a long-term type of compression, and then they're back in three months. They bump their leg on the chair, or you know the scenario. Do you have any suggestions about that? What do you think? Well, again, just making sure that they understand why this is happening to them. And I, with you, I've had patients that were religious about their compression and they still reulcerate. Just informing them of what will happen if they fall off the wagon, so to speak, and throw the compression hose away or whatever. An understanding of the disease, the need and the role of compression to prevent ulceration and reulceration. And I try to use analogies that make sense because most of my patients don't have a good healthcare literacy. And so they'll come in and ask me why it's happening. And I'll say, you know, your leg is not made of stainless steel. Think of it as a water balloon. At some point, it's going to hold so much fluid that it's going to break. And look how swollen you are. And that sort of analogizing seems to make sense to patients that don't really have good healthcare literacy. And I think also you have to be realistic about your patient's abilities, whether that's applying the compression, being able to afford their compression. Like Dr. Bonham said, if they can't afford therapeutics, something is better than nothing. Step them back to something they can afford, but then have them elevate and do calf muscle pumps at the same time for half an hour, three to four times a day. And then you've got gravity, a calf muscle pump, and then some degree of compression working with you and customize the compression to your patient. If they can't get hose on, can they do the adjustable? Work with them to help them be able to comply. If they can't apply what you've recommended, then obviously that's not a good solution. And for people who tell me they have difficulty putting hose on in the morning, put them on before you get out of bed because once those feet hit the floor, the swelling starts. Those are probably the main things I try to hit with them to make sure they understand and comply long-term. Okay. What do you like to do about follow-up for those patients? Say they're healed and you have them in a good compression plan and they're doing all those things you just suggested. How often do you follow up? Because it seems like sometimes people then they heal and they fall off the radar until they're ulcerated and have a problem again. What do you think about that, Linda? Well, generally, when I had an outpatient clinic, I'm acute care now, I used to, even after they healed, I would go ahead and wrap them for another couple of weeks just to allow that skin to mature because, you know, you start wrestling hose over brand new epithelium, you're liable to disrupt that. So I usually would keep them in compression for a couple of weeks and then 
cautiously turn them loose and tell them, please come back to me at the first sign of a problem. Of course, they would have to go through their physician for a referral, but I would rather get that ulcer while it's tiny than before it's circumferential. It's hard to follow people in an outpatient clinic without a wound, so I would follow them sort of short term just to hopefully allow that skin a better chance of staying intact and then really, really, really hammer the need for them to come back ASAP at the first sign of any problems. Okay. That sounds like a good practical solution. So now we have these beautiful new guidelines and I'm a walk nurse that's new in an outpatient clinic setting. How would you suggest that we implement that? How would you start with the guidelines in terms of practice in a clinic? Well, first and foremost, the walk nurse or WOC nurse do not try to do it all at once and don't try to do it alone. So everything else I'm going to say is sort of predicated on that basis. Implementing and changing, integrating best practice, evidence-based knowledge into praxis is not simple, it's not quick, and it's not easy. And there is no one magic bullet or recipe for every situation or setting. But what we do know is the guideline will not implement itself. And just having it there sitting on the shelf is not benefiting anyone. It requires a specific plan. And recognizing that over the years, we decided with this version of the guideline, we have attempted to provide a brief guide in our guideline. And as Dr. Kalajad was mentioning page numbers earlier, we added an implementation section starts on page eight. It's in the formatter. And the brief guide for applying evidence-based knowledge to clinical practice, it's based on a framework developed by Graham and his colleagues back in 2006 called the Knowledge to Action Framework. We looked around for something that was simple, that was easy to use, that was not too complex, and then we developed some recommendations around that in the guide. The KTA framework, abbreviating the Knowledge to Action, has two main cycles, which is the creation of knowledge, and then in the second main cycle, it's the action cycle where the knowledge is applied or implemented in practice. And that requires several phases. So I would encourage our members to read that specific information. So the first step is to review the complete guideline and to review the recommendations to look at the section on implementation in that rather detailed guide. There are specific steps and strategies within that that can walk you through a process for implementing and integrating a change in practice. And then after the WOC nurse has reviewed the information, establish an implementation task force. It's important to choose a leader and a facilitator with the skills and abilities to guide that process through beginning to end because it's going to be lengthy. It's going to take a lot of time, requires a lot of commitment. And so it requires the right team of people to then develop the overall plan. As I mentioned, don't try to do it all at once. I think we have how many pages in this guideline? One of our staff in the national office said, Dr. Bonham, how come this is getting so big? <laughs> well, when we first started working on evidence-based guidelines back in the late 90s, there was very little literature in wound care. You've probably been around in practice. You remember that. However, as Dr. Kalachai indicated that she and Glenda reviewed, the volume of research and information has grown exponentially. So it's a big book now. It has a lot of information in there. So the important thing is to look at those recommendations, to look at the information, and look at gaps between practice and the guideline. What are some of the priorities 
that you might see that are there. For example, perhaps the ABIs are simply not being done at all. The Vascular Lab is not doing them. Nobody else is doing them. Compression is not used, which still continues. We know that that compression is the cornerstone of effective prevention and treatment of LEVD and venous flag ulcers, as well as prevention of recurrence. There are still many areas where compression is not utilized for various reasons or it's not utilized appropriate. So pick those areas that are key and important and and have some priority to them, and then begin to address with the specifics that are outlined there with the knowledge to action framework to establish a plan of attack. You want to look first at your particular setting and what's the culture within that, who are going to be the target users for any change and recommendations, who's going to benefit, who are the stakeholders, and you want to adapt that knowledge to the local context within what you need to have changed. Look at the barriers, who, what are the obstacles to success. Look for facilitators for evidence and best practice. Who are the champions? Who are the cheerleaders that are enthusiastic and are real advocates for evidence-based practice? Then there's a hope of strategies for selecting and tailoring the interventions that are going to be changed and implemented within the setting. And of course, it may be different if it's an outpatient clinic versus home care or acute care. So that has to be taken into context. And then there has to be a specific plan to monitor and evaluate these changes. Once you've decided on what you want to implement for best practice, how is it going to be evaluated? How are you going to be sure it's happening? What data do you need to evaluate in order to determine if you've achieved success? What are the success criteria? And then to have a plan for sustaining that change. You know, we don't want somebody to do it for a week or two and then poof, we're tired of that already. Kind of like the patients are tired of wearing their their stockings after a little while. So how can we sustain that use and integrate that? What's our plan for determining follow-up and how to do that? And one of the toolkits that we mentioned in the guideline is a reference and a referral to our fellow Canadian experts. Interestingly, the Registered Nurse Association of Ontario has developed a toolkit for implementation of best practices from guidelines. It's based on the Knowledge to Action Framework. It's available for a free download. And we provide a link to the toolkit in the guideline. It's also in the JWCN article that we wrote, the complete link. Or if you just put in your Google search bar, Google knows everything in the world. So if you just put the RNAO implementation toolkit in your search bar, it'll pull that up as an option. You can go right to it and you can download it for free. It's a large document. It's very extensive and specific, has a lot of little tips and wonderful steps to guide you through it. So we recommend that if you really want to get into it, first do some evaluation, some looking at implementation strategies, figure out how you're going to approach it, as well as looking at the specific LEVD guideline. And we certainly wish you luck. We would love to know, for example, whether or not any of these recommendations are actually being instituted in practice. In the companion to the executive summary that we published in the journal, I mentioned I have looked back to some older studies about venous disease, and it was rather shocking to find that most of the key recommendations about appropriate compression, determining the perfusion level, were not being implemented at all.
And frankly, this is something that we've talked about. I know Dr. Kalachai and I have talked about it, is that we would like to see something that we could develop a survey of our membership to find out, is it being used? Is this providing specific guidance? Is it being integrated into practice? And that's something that we have not done as a society to evaluate the implementation on a large basis for that area. So if folks are implementing practice, please publish it, develop a poster, and encourage us to consider at some future point of having a more in-depth evaluation of that. Sounds like a great project for somebody. So as an acute care CWOCM, our team where I am has a lot of consults for patients that have LEVD or have ulcers and they have frequent admissions for cellulitis. And then sometimes, you know, the compression isn't removed to evaluate what's going on under there. But aside from doing that, what kind of suggestions do you have as far as managing those patients? They get IV antibiotics and then a walk consult. But what else should the CWOCN be thinking about or doing to manage those patients in the best way? Well, this is another really important question from a clinical practice area. And it's another one of those theories that has poor science behind it. One of the things I want to say, however, in terms of thinking about the BLU patient, the LEVD patient that's being admitted for cellulitis is first to determine that the diagnosis is correct. Although LEVD is a risk for cellulitis, venous eczema and dermatitis is commonly misdiagnosed as cellulitis and inappropriately treated with antibiotics. Some limited small older studies have suggested that as much as 30% of cellulitis is misdiagnosed. And I have to say, in all honesty, and you know, I would appreciate Glenda, Dr. Kelichai's feedback perhaps on this as well, is that in my long-term practice in the field and in hospitals and, and clinics, et cetera, I honestly can't remember the venous patient that had cellulitis. I saw many patients that had venous eczema and were misdiagnosed as cellulitis and were mistreated. And I don't mean mistreated in the way, but they were treated with antibiotics, which in some case made it worse. So one of the things that we have done in our guideline is we have a, an appendix in the back of the document that shows differential assessment of venous dermatitis or eczema compared to cellulitis. And so it's important to differentiate those two, keeping in mind that the cellulitis can mimic other conditions, and the dermatitis, particularly for individuals that are not that familiar in working with lower extremity venous disease. As I said, the patients that I would see, they were simply not diagnosed correctly, and it was venous dermatitis was the problem. Early in my practice, I had no idea about venous dermatitis and eczema. And it was some of our early guidelines that I thought, wow, actually, I read an article back in 1991. It was an old paper that came from the UK that talked about venous dermatitis. And it was like a light bulb went off above my head. I said, wow, that has been my problem <laughs> and the patient's problem. I didn't know, the patient didn't know, and the physicians weren't aware of that. And so it is a real issue. So first of all is validate the diagnosis. Unfortunately, as I said, some of the clinical signs are similar. There are some clues in the differential assessment that can be helpful. Venous eczema and dermatitis is usually chronic with severe itching that's associated with the diagnosis of LADD. Patient has edema, may have varicose veins, the hemosiderone staining, lipodermatosclerosis. 
And itching is often one of the key signs and symptoms that the patient complains of. The erythema and the inflammation with venous disease is commonly irregular in distribution, and it does not respond to antibiotics. And indeed, if topical antibiotics are applied, it often gets worse. And particularly when we talked about sensitivity and contact reactions, it's, it's, there's a high percentage of those patients that have LAVD that will react to topical antibiotics. However, it does respond to topical steroids, as we discussed earlier. Cellulitis, on the other hand, has an acute onset with fever and pain. So it's sort of severe itching and those LEVD symptoms, we've got an acute onset with severe pain and fever. The erythema and inflammation is generally well demarcated and circumscribed. I know we often draw a circle around it to see if it's advancing. The cellulitis does not respond to our typical therapies. It does respond to systemic antibiotics, and you may be able to identify a portal of entry. In other words, there may be a, some type of a traumatic injury or situation or open area with a wound that allows the infection to invade. Unfortunately, the diagnosis of cellulitis initially is based primarily on the clinical manifestations because as we identified in our differential chart and the appendix in our guideline, the laboratory values, the WBC, C-reactive protein, erythrocyte sed rates are often elevated, but not always. So a normal value doesn't rule out a diagnosis of cellulitis. Cultures are not recommended for localized, uncomplicated cellulitis because the sensitivity of those cultures, uh, even with blood cultures, is low. If you have localized cellulitis, the blood culture is often negative. And some of that information is coming from the um, Infectious Diseases Society of America. However, if you have advancing cellulitis that maybe you've drawn your circle around that, then you do want to consider systemic therapy with culture-guided therapy. The most common pathogens that are identified in lower limb cellulitis are streptococcal bacteria. That's about 75 to 80% and staph aureus, which occurs in about 10%. And then some of your patients are going to have both of those that are there. So it's going to be important to think through that process of whether this is truly cellulitis or dermatitis. And then if you're feeling more towards the cellulitis, then move into consultation and collaboration with your healthcare provider, infectious disease specialist. Often for a localized cellulitis, the recommendation, interestingly enough, that are coming from national guidelines is empiric therapy to start with for uncomplicated localized cellulitis with either oral or intravenous systemic antibiotics. Generally, one of the penicillin varieties is utilized there. Erythromycin or clindamycin is also often used if the patient's allergic to penicillin. And then in addition to the antibiotic, systemic cortisones uh, such as eight days of prednisone may be given to facilitate resolution of the cellulitis. And guidelines can differ on the treatment depending on whether the symptoms are localized or whether the patient has systemic advancing signs of sepsis and whether or not the cellulitis is involved with purulent or uh, non-purulent presentations. If cellulitis is being treated effectively with the antibiotics, then one of the things you should see is they should start getting better within 24 to 72 hours if the effectiveness is there. Now, one of the important things that you mentioned is what about this recurrent cellulitis that occurs? Now, we're reaching beyond where we have the guideline for LEVD 
looking at the literature. So what I'm going to be sharing with you now comes from a couple of different sources, the ISDA, Infectious Disease of America, a Cochrane review, and then also a NICE review, NICE from the UK, that is available on the ECR website. And it's very interesting about the data about recurrent cellulitis. And again, mentioning that we know LEBD in an open wound can be a risk factor for cellulitis. The interesting data is that cellulitis recurs in 25 to 46% of the hospitalized patients within three years. And that's just looking at overall patients. We did not look specifically at the incidence of cellulitis in LEVD patients for our particular guideline. That may be something we want to put on the, the hit list for future sorts of activities. And with those patients and focusing on the LEVD patient and others with recurrent cellulitis, one of the things that it's important to do is to assess and treat those predisposing factors for cellulitis. So it's just treat the dry skin because if it cracks, it can become a portal. Treat the venous symptoms, treat the dermatitis, treat the edema because edema is going to exacerbate the cellulitis. Make sure that patient is, they have cellulitis, but elevation and compression at an appropriate level is still going to be important. And try to identify, are there poor hygiene problems and address other comorbid factors. We know that some of our patients, many of them maybe have problems with obesity or they may have COVID factors such as diabetes in addition to having venous disease. Also, it's very important when you're looking at that patient who has LEVD and you're thinking, is this cellulitis or dermatitis, look at those interdigital spaces. Interdigital intertrigo, where there's fissures and scaling and maceration, is an open portal. And tinea pedis is one of the key factors that's associated with cellulitis. So it's important to look for that because often a superficial fungal infection is the route of entry for those. Now, in addition to managing the predisposing factors for the patient with venous disease, interestingly, these guidelines are currently recommending that if a patient has recurrent episodes, and that means three to four a year, despite your interventions, that you may consider prophylactic antibiotics. So you don't start off the bat giving prophylactic antibiotics, but if they keep repeating and the guideline says three to four episodes a year, then consider putting them on long-term oral antibiotics. And the most common antibiotic that I saw mentioned in those guidelines that I mentioned was penicillin first and then erythromycin. And for those of you that are interested in a lot of detail, I would encourage you to look up the Infectious Diseases Society of America, the Cochrane Library, and then go to the ECR website for the recently developed NICE guideline. They have large, huge tables about the specific drugs and when you give them, whether it's staph only or strep only or both or something else. And they go through large, there are table after table about the different drugs and the dosage and that sort of thing. So it has a comprehensive listing of medications that are there. Great. And then I always struggle with when to restart the compression on those patients. Usually they've had something before. So sometimes I wait and once the cellulitis looks resolved and they're ready to go, I'll restart it. Do you have a clinical opinion or did you see anything information wise about that? Generally, you have expert opinion that if the patient has swelling and edema and can tolerate the compression, you can go ahead and apply it at an appropriate level. And then the kicker is that that compression needs to be changed frequently, like every day, to monitor the level of infection. Because if the edema is not controlled, 
that is going to exacerbate the symptoms because the swelling is going to interfere with appropriate healing. It's also going to interfere with the drugs getting to the site to facilitate healing. So it's a matter of can the patient tolerate it? Maybe consider a reduced level of compression with some leg elevation is recommended for cellulitis anyway to elevate the extremity. I would consider as early as the patient can tolerate it unless I get a specific recommendation from the doctor to hold off. And then, of course, that's going to be based upon also knowing whether the patient has coexisting disease. And the few patients that I, and this is just, again, personal clinical experience that had cellulitis also had diabetes or arterial disease. But we compressed them fairly early at a level they could tolerate and then made sure it was changed every day to check the status. Anytime you have an infected wound, you want to make sure somebody's checking that every day from a clinical standpoint. Okay, that makes sense. Great. So tell me, what are the areas that have the greatest need for research in this patient population? It sounds like a lot has been done and a lot still needs to be done. So what would you say are the top areas? Maybe that's a good question for you, Teresa. We've heard a lot from both Dr. Bonham and Glenda on many areas needing research. From my perspective, I would like to see more research on some of these psychosocial factors that influence healing and the interaction of genetics on wound healing. And what I mean by psychosocial factors, things like loneliness and social isolation, which very common in this population. In fact, I found a citation that 68% of people with venous leg ulcers reported they were socially isolated and 80% reported loneliness. So I think other areas that we don't have much literature on, but we know is emerging is what is the influence of telehealth care and providing not only guidance for wound care, but also to address some of these mental health needs. I thought Dr. Bonham did an excellent job of talking about the venous dermatitis eczema and the cellulitis. That is another, quote, hot area needed for research. Also, I think that when Glenda was talking about adherence to compression, she identified lots of important areas about, for example, the expense and the reimbursement for coverage, yet we're still struggling with how these folks can get these on when they can't bend over and they can't don or doff compression stockings. So I think there's some great areas in how to enhance adherence. And then when Glenda was talking about the medications and supplements, We recognize that meds or supplements such as micronized purified flavonoid fraction or what we call MPFF or coarse chestnut seed extracts, we need to be much more vigilant in offering those to patients with a caveat that they can interact with other medications, for example, blood thinners. I think those areas, and then finally, I think we need to look at better genetic models to assess systemic inflammation. Inflammation has a large influence on healing, and we're starting to recognize that systemic inflammation can be a major culprit in delayed healing. So I think taking a look at the research and conducting more research associated with systemic inflammation can really add to the literature. And Glenda, tell me what kind of clinical resources you like to use on a day-to-day basis. Say if you get like a challenging patient or have a newer nurse that maybe is looking for some advice from you, besides these wonderful guidelines, what else do you suggest to people? Well, several have been alluded to before, of course, the guideline and the WOCN algorithm that Phyllis explained so well. The core curriculum textbook that the WOCN has produced is awesome. The document library 
In addition to the clinical resource guide on venous arterial and neuropathic wounds, there's also a reminder, refresher for ABI procedure and interpretation for those of us who don't do it that often. It's a good idea to pull that out and look at it before you do that. The WOCN forums, whether you go on and just search whatever topic you're looking for information or pose a question, our colleagues are very willing to give you feedback, suggestions, articles. That is a wonderful resource from the WOCN. Networking with colleagues, both my coworkers, my vascular colleagues, physical therapy, OT. We really need to network and pull together to make this work because it's truly a very difficult thing to manage. And then the last thing is something that's just internal to our organization. I work at an academic medical center, so we treat people from even outside the state. So one thing I put together to try to coordinate aftercare, because once they're gone, they still have the problem, is a list of outpatient clinics and what services they offer. Do they have certified staff? What certification do they hold? What do they require? Just trying to coordinate that next transition to whichever setting they're going to next to hopefully ensure that they get good quality care in their next setting. That's a great idea. Yeah. So many times it's just follow up with your primary. And they have no idea what about this stuff. None at all. Right. Yeah. They have a lot of other problems to contend with the primaries too. So that's a great idea. All right. Now, so I understand that you ladies are going to be presenting about this guideline at the WOC Next Reimagined Conference. It's coming up in June. Is that true? And can you give us a little uh, teaser about what you're going to talk about in June? Sure. Yep, it is true. We will be presenting. We look forward to that new type of forum. I think it's going to be different, but yet fun as we're all learning about video conferencing and these new platforms. Most of what we talked about today, Jody, will be presented. We we gave the major highlights in terms of assessment and treatment and patient education. So I'm not sure that we have any grand new ideas or reports, but there will be things that we'll talk about that we didn't discuss today. So I'm hoping folks will tune in and I'm kind of being a little bit teasy here. I don't want to give everything away, but certainly there will be new and different kinds of areas that we haven't focused too much on today. So hopefully people will join in. They should listen to this and then listen to that in June. Absolutely. Okay. That's what we think should happen. Okay. (laughs) All right. I've had you ladies on for a very long time today, and I'm so happy and learned so much from you all. So what else should I have asked you? Is there anything else that's important about what we talked about today or that maybe we should talk about that we didn't bring up yet? I really can't think of anything else. No, I think you did a pretty thorough job with your questions. Well, you all did a really thorough job with your answers. (laughs) Asking the questions is the easy part. That's my secret. (laughs) Dr. Bonham, anything else that you can think of? Well, I don't think I have anything that we would cover uh, at this point. However, I did want to point out that, you know, one of the things we talked about often is that there's not coverage for patients unless they have an ulcer to wear compression stockings. And I did want to let folks know that our public policy group has been trying to work on this, uh, and they've been at this for years now, and they continue to try to work with the legislators in Washington to get coverage for individuals without having a wound. So we want to encourage and support them in any way we can to continue that effort. They'll get right near to it, and then Congress will adjourn, and then they have to start all over again. So they know that that is a problem. And I want to personally thank our primary office here at Dr. Kalachai and Glenda for their hard, hard, hard work in 
bringing this to life and for our overall task force for their patience and support and our peer reviewers they reviewed the guideline and gave us feedback and national office did a yeoman's job it takes several months once we get the document to them to be able to have it brought forward and i think that we also want to encourage our members not only the print guideline i'm hoping you have that and put it on your library and then consider getting the mobile app both of those are available in the bookstore and there are often times when you're in some location and need to be able to access that mobile app and it's right there available on your phone or your laptop whatever you can get and it can really be a lifesaver because it has all the guidelines that are there it has the venous the arterial the neuropathic as well as ostomy and pressure injury they keep that updated and if you've ever bought the mobile app then you don't have to pay for it again when it's updated that's yours forever for that one time only price and I know I've used it in many, many times when I needed to be able to go back to one of our guidelines and find out what was that specific recommendation so that I was comfortable that I was providing reliable information to individuals that inquired. Great. That's a great idea. Thank you for that suggestion. And thank you all for joining me again. I really appreciate it. And I'm excited to hear what you have to say in June at WOC Next. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jody. The guidelines can be purchased at the WOCN bookstore at wocn.org backslash store. And again, they are entitled Guideline for Management of Wounds in Patients with Lower Extremity Venous Disease. Also look forward to hearing from Drs. Kalachai and Glenda Brunette at WOC Next Reimagined in June regarding some of the other things that we didn't talk about today in this exciting document. Thanks for joining us. Look forward to hearing from you for next time's edition of Walk Talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of Walk Talk. Please visit WOCN.org slash podcast for additional details about this topic and the speakers. You can also get more information about subscribing to this podcast so you never miss an episode and to get the latest news and information from the WOCN Society. Again, that's WOCN.org slash podcast. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Walk Talk. Walk Talk.